Hi there. Thank you for connecting with me and subscribing to Living the Sky Life podcast. I hope that the content of each episode brings you hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways. The Special Needs Parenting Village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. Please connect with me through my Living the Sky Life Facebook page or Instagram account. And let's keep this conversation going after each episode airs. Thanks again for tuning in for season two of Living the Sky Life. Today's guest on the podcast reached out to me actually after listening to my episode with my neurotypical daughter, Kendall. And after we connected, we realized we have very many similarities in our lives. So I'm so excited to present my conversation with Amy McCoy today. A little bit of background about Amy. Um, She is actually an author of a children's novel series entitled Little Big Sister. Um, In that novel series, she shares the sibling perspective of growing up with a brother who has special needs. Amy's children, Matthew, who is 16, and Catherine, who is 14, are the inspiration for her books and her work. Amy visits elementary schools, libraries, bookstores, and other community groups, offering interactive presentations highlighting disability awareness. Amy is a former elementary school teacher who has also worked in special education advocacy, helping families connect with services. Currently, she is a disability educator, and in 2019, she published a sequel titled Little Big Sister on the Move, referencing um, their family move from Connecticut to New York. Amy is working on a third novel and writes a special needs parenting blog titled Dancing in the Rain. Amy's goal with her books and her work is to help siblings who grow up alongside a brother or sister with any disability to feel less alone and more supported on their journey. Her mission is to help people of all ages to just get it about what life is like living with a family member who has autism or any disability. So please enjoy my conversation as we talk about all of the things with books, uh, Amy McCoy. So today's episode of Living the Sky Life is yet another opportunity for me to profile a autism mom warrior who is also a children's book author and um, a writer in her own right. So um, I am so excited we connected and to welcome Amy McCoy to the podcast today. So welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Absolutely. I was so excited when you reached out to me um, because I had not seen your book. I apologize. Um, And I was so thrilled when you mentioned it to me. And it just in talking to you um, prior, we have so many things that connect us. And this is the whole point of the podcast. I love meeting other moms in similar situations or maybe completely different autism family scenarios, but that we can just relate so much on many levels. Um, It's just been so great. So I want to at least give you an opportunity in the beginning to talk a little bit about your family, Um, your husband, Greg, and you have Mm -hmm. a son, Matthew, that's 16 on the spectrum. Yeah. And your daughter, Catherine, who is 14. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, moving backwards when you and Greg discovered that there might be some delays with Matthew? Yes, absolutely. And I agree. We have so many things in common after reading your book and hearing your podcast with your daughter. I knew that we would be a great connection. So um, going back to, um, like you said, backtracking to Um, when Matthew was a baby and we were figuring things out. So since he was our first child, we didn't really know what to look for. He 
you know, we thought everything was fine. And then I started noticing because I had a lot of friends who had babies in August of 2004. So when I would get together with them for a stroller walk or a music class or what have you, I would no start noticing some differences at around, you know, six or seven months, I started noticing differences, the things that other babies were able to do, Matthew wasn't quite doing yet. So I was asking at the pediatrician and, oh, everything's fine, everything's fine, which is what I wanted to hear. But I kind of knew in my heart that that wasn't the answer. <laughs> and then finally at around nine months, at the nine month pediatrician well check, um, he wasn't needing any of the gross motor milestones, rolling, sitting, anything. And the pediatrician said, okay, now that he's not meeting these milestones and we're two months outside of the normal range of meeting needs, you're gonna have to call early intervention services. And I remember feeling a wave of, ang a little bit of anger because I was thinking, wait a minute, I've been asking you every month for the past you know, three or four months is there something going on? Is there something going on? And you could tell me everything's fine. And also a, a little bit of wave of relief of, oh, maybe I'm going to get some help or some answers. So, um, so he was nine months when we first made our first call to early intervention. And I'll never forget, they sent a team. It was just a team of two people to the house. And one was a physical therapist. One was probably, um, I think, just a generalist in the field of early intervention. And they were doing all these tests on Matthew. I don't know if, I don't know if the process is the same today in 2020, but they were doing things like to check his um, reflexes. They were taking him, they were taking him by the waist and turning him upside down really quick to see if he had the reflex of putting his hands out in front of him to, to break a fall, those types of things. And he was just kind of laughing and giggling and you know, not putting his hands out and not having those reflexes, but I didn't really know what they were testing. I was just sitting there watching. <laughs> um, I know. And then um, at the end, uh, now at the time I was a teacher, so I was expecting them to have to, you know, go over their testing and a week later come back to me with some sort of um, an answer or a reply. But at the end of the testing, right then and there, they said, well, he qualifies for physical therapy. So <laughs> I know crazy they had so, to go through all that. You're like, I, I already know, know that. <laughs> yeah. So he qualified for physical therapy. And this is funny. And I, I've written about this in my blog back way back when, but um, at that point in my life, to me, physical therapy meant I was injured and I was going to a physical therapist, maybe for six weeks or eight weeks to rehabilitate the injury. Okay. That was my limited understanding of what physical therapy meant. Uh -huh. So in my, so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, my nine month old child is going to start physical therapy to help him meet these gross milestones. So what are we talking? Six months? What, how, what are we thinking? Is he going to, he's going to be walking by Christmas? Like what are we, this is really what my brain was thinking. So I asked my list of questions, you know, when do we start? How often a week does he have it? All those types of questions. And then I asked that question. I said, how long will he have physical therapy? And I really thought the answer was going to be six months or eight months or something like that. And I will never forget 
the two professionals that were sitting there in my living room with me, they gave each other a look, a very quick glance. <laughs> and as it, and at, <laughs> yep, that was the glance. And as a teacher, I could read that glance so quickly. I said, oh, that's the look of she, this mom doesn't get it. This, you know, but I ha- I'm so grateful for the answer they gave because it was so gentle. <laughs> the answer was, most babies who begin physical therapy or any service from early intervention at this young age end up staying with the early intervention program until they age out at age three. Mm-hmm. That, isn't, that a, isn't that a great answer? Yeah, it's the kind answer. <laughs> it's so kind. And I just looked at them and I nodded my head as if I understood, but in my head, I was actually thinking, well, not my kid. He's going he's gonna to be walking and rolling and crawling and doing all these things by Christmas. And you know, within six or eight months, we're going to be done with physical therapy. What are you talking about? But of course, I didn't say that out loud. P.S. He's now 16 and still receives physical therapy. I know. So. I was going to say that when they <laughs> made Skylar graduate at age three because he aged out, I'm like, please, he's not ready. <laughs> like, can't you just give us right? one more year, two more years? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So that was the start. That was the start of, okay, something's up. Some, you know, we don't, we're not quite sure what it is, but something's up. And we started with physical and then that turned into every other therapy. So by the time he was 18 months within this early intervention program, um, at the time we lived in, we, and we live again in New York. Um, he was by 18 months, he was also receiving OT speech and a special education teacher was also coming to the house once a week. So he was receiving everything, OTPT speech and special ed by 18 months. So, and I was working full-time as a teacher at the time. So our schedule was really busy and crazy and, but I'm still grateful for it because I learned a lot from those professionals coming in and out of my house. <laughs> Who was but, it that- um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh you. no, go ahead. Who was it that um, suggested you guys seek out an autism diagnosis, and from where did you get that diagnosis? Okay, so that came so slowly, and again, I'm great, and I'm grateful for that too, because I think back then they were not, you know, this is two. He was born in 2004, so back then, it could be similar to your experience. They weren't, they weren't saying like autism right away. Uh-huh. They would maybe say. They would suggest it, or maybe I'd heard of it, and I asked, and they said, "Oh no, no, not yet." He's didn't, or they didn't say yet. They probably said something like, "Oh, he's still too young to diagnose that." So we took him to everywhere, Lori. We took, or we we lived close to New York City, so we took him to this top doctor in New York City, and she told us, um, "Apraxia of speech—that's his diagnosis." So I learned everything I could about apraxia. I attended the national conferences about a for um for apraxia three or four times, three years in a row. Um, he's, and so that was my main focus was learning everything I could about apraxia, because if I could learn it, then we could help him. Right. <laughs> that was my, that was how I was thinking. Then um, by the time he aged out of early intervention, we had then moved to Connecticut and he was in a preschool program, a wonderful pre- preschool program in the town where we lived. And it was a great special ed program. They had lots of supports and services. And the physical therapist who worked with him there suggested she knew of another family that she had worked with that took their child to, of all places, the Mayo Clinic. And she, she was, so she was um, describing Matthew as a puzzle. She said, you know, he's such a puzzle because he can do this, but he can't do that. He can do this, but he can't do that. Like she was, for example, 
he had an intent to communicate. He was trying so hard to communicate and he couldn't because of his apraxia. Um, he wasn't, and he didn't start walking till he was like two and a half. He, you know, he had all these, all these struggles and different things going on. So Mayo Clinic didn't even say autism. Then it wasn't until he was like about six years old that he got the actual autism diagnosis. And I was fishing for it because as you know, as an autism mom, if you don't have the autism diagnosis, you don't get specific types of services. <laughs> so I was, I was kind of going to doctors, looking for it, trying to get it. Um, and it wasn't until he was about six years old in first grade where they told us, now we can say with complete certainty that this is autism. And interestingly enough, and this is probably unique, he, he, didn't think, he did not start speaking until he was about five. And once he was able to start speaking and express his thoughts a little bit, that helped with the autism diagnosis because they, they told me, now that we can see how he's thinking, we can tell you for certain that this is autism. So it was a long road to the autism diagnosis. Well, and so the, uh, did they treat the apraxia any differently? I know you said he had speech therapy, but mm -hmm. was he having just general speech therapy and then the apraxia diagnosis came and did they change anything they were doing with the therapy? Yes, they actually did. He was receiving something called prompt therapy. Are you familiar with that? Oh, I've never heard of that. Okay, so P-R-O-M-P-T, and it stand, each letter stands for something, and I'm not sure why because I'm not a speech therapist, but basically what it was was where a specially trained, prompt trained speech therapist would use her hands like practically in his mouth and on his jaw and touching his lips in a certain way to help form the mouth and the jaw to say the sounds. So the, the speech therapist was actually manipulating his mouth and his jaw and his lips to be in the right position to say the sounds. So that was one of the therapies that he was receiving um, specifically for apraxia. And then we were so lucky because one of the, um, I told you I went, I attended the national apraxia. It's called the, um, what is it? Kasana, Childhood Apraxia of Speech Association of North America. That's the name of the organization. They hold a national conference every summer. So um, lucky me for my husband and my 10th anniversary, our anniversary trip was to the Apraxia Conference. <laughs> fun, fun times. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like so much fun? We got, we had our getaway, we had our little getaway to, it was, it was, it was in, um, Williamsburg, Virginia, and we went for two nights. It was probably our first, you know, two night in a row away from our kids. We learned a lot. And one of the speech therapists who was there, at the time we lived in Connecticut, and one of the speech therapists who was there was from Connecticut and only lived about 30 minutes from us. So we ended up connecting with her and she was such an expert in apraxia. I, she did such a great job with him. And she was the types of, um, just the type of strategies that she was using with him was like she would have him in a swing in her office. So he was moving while she was working with him. And she, you know, so she did a lot of really neat things, probably that I'll never know or understand, but she got him talking. 
<laughs> well, that's always, mm -hmm. that's always good. So then yeah. you bring into the mix, um, your daughter a couple years after having Matthew. Mm -hmm. Um, so I know he was still in early intervention at this point. Um, mm -hmm. you said, I think you told me earlier that he started to, um, speak at around age five. Um, can you yeah. tell me a little bit about that story? I think that's a beautiful story and yeah. relatable to me. Not that I've heard Skylar speak, but just your reaction mm -hmm. is yes. something I mentioned in my book too. So yes, yes. So um, he was around five years old and up until this point he had been, you know, he, oh, he when we watch videos of him now at, at before he was verbal, you can tell he's trying so hard to get across a point. He's doing a lot of uh, 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 like the noises and, and trying to point like his, his movements were kind of gross because of he had global apraxia. So he's trying to point or at least gesture towards the thing that he wants. And we kind of, we would kind of just figure out what it was that he was trying to say or wanted. So this one day that this one story that you were asking me to say was he, um, he was in the bathtub. He was about five years old, like just it was a couple weeks before he turned five. And it was one of those nights, you know, as a mom with young kids, you just, you want to put them to bed so you can breathe at night. So I was trying to end the bath. I turned off the water and I was quickly washing him and helping him with his hair and about to get him out of the tub. And he was resisting. He wanted to stay in the tub. And he actually said, I not done mommy. And I just like, I was probably already on my knees, but I just, you know, fell, put my face down on the towel on the ground and just tears of just every emotion, joy and happiness. And then just, I just couldn't believe it that he not just said one word, but said three words, I not done. And he wasn't done with that bath. <laughs> so yeah. I was thinking, all I could think of was like, you can stay in the bath for hours and hours. That's, that's great. This, I'm so happy that you were able to tell me. <laughs> So that was, the, that was the beginning of him being able to communicate verbally. And um, he has had amazing speech therapists along the way who've really helped to um, just to make his speech better and better. And he, he's, a, he's a man of, he's a young man of loving to learn new words. And it's kind of neat now, like if he says a word that we never knew that he even knew the the meaning of or how to say it it's it's kind of cute like we'll, we'll you know look at each other like oh I didn't know he knew that word you know he's <laughs> la last week he said the word partake and we were like what, what? You, know, <laughs> you, you know the word partake like it was actually kind of funny and sweet but and then I said you know where'd you hear that word he said, oh from papa from you know from grandpa so he's listening all the time and loves to learn new words so kind of neat that's awesome so does he um is he able to pretty much tell you guys what it is that he needs? I mean, he has a pretty wide yeah. vocabulary at this point. He, he doesn't is. need any assistive devices. No, no, he still, he still attends speech. Um, and, I, and he'll always need some help in the area of speech and language, but he is able to, um, thankfully he's able to communicate a hundred percent verbally and he's usually understandable. Like we, we can understand him like 95% of the time. Um, a stranger, probably 50% of the time could understand what he's trying to say, you know, like his, you know, it's not, his articulation isn't great, but that's okay. We can understand him <laughs> and, his yeah. and his teachers and his teachers can understand him. Um, 
And then like a typical, like a typical autism child, he likes to speak incessantly about his interests. So, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about what time the garbage man is coming, what time the recycling man is coming, what, you know, those types of high interest um, activities for him. Mm -hmm. So then, um, as I mentioned um, a little early, I guess, that um, Catherine was, is two years younger than him and she is 14. So when, you know, he's kind of thriving in therapy and doing all these things and she's developing on her own as a little baby and doing everything, you know, hitting all the milestones, did you kind of, as I went through, our kids are the same distance apart in age, um, just watching your daughter do everything effortlessly, you know, um, what was that like for you emotionally? And, um, I'd love to hear about their connection, you know, what he thought of this little baby, this little thing that was noisy in the house too. Yes. So I remember like, so I don't know if it's the same for you, but when I look back on that time, I, I, as a mom was really in a fog because we were in a, we were in a state of a lot of question marks in our own heads about what was going on with Matthew and we didn't have any hard diagnoses yet which is what we were looking for so um that was a difficult time and then here I was bringing this new baby into the world and like you said she's loud and she needs a lot of attention so he and he wasn't walking or talking or communicating yet so it was like having two babies you know I'm sure that was similar to your experience um so that was difficult in the beginning trying to tend to both babies um at the same time and real and figure out how to meet their needs. But then as she was growing very typically, I realized quickly that she in many ways was like a first child to us because she was kind of leading the way and showing us like, okay, this is how it's done, <laughs> you know, and still now, like even though she's our second child in many ways, she's like our first child because we don't have anyone who paved the way for her in terms of like, so this is what it like, what it's like when you go to high school. And this is what it's like the first time you go to summer camp. And this is what it's like for this. Like there's no, you know, now she is lucky to have, you know, older cousins who paved that way for her and, you know, neighbors that are older, that, you know, that are kind of like older siblings to her, but she doesn't have, you know, another sibling. And I know she wishes that she does. I wish she, she wishes she wishes that she had another sibling. She says so. You're like that ship has sailed. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's not, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But um. But I do notice. I, I I noticed when they were in early in early elementary school that the day would come. When I I remember kind of not dreading it, but I was like, oh, one day the day will come where she kind of surpasses him, and it all started around the time like she learned how to ride a two-wheeler bike like he's not that's not going to happen for him and she you know jumps in someone else's car to go on a play date like that's not going to happen for him she has a friend sleepover that's not going to happen for him so like around the time and all those things started happening for her was when I realized wow she has surpassed in every way shape and form so that's a that's an excellent segue into your book because um you know just being a blogger that you you know you were for many years um you said too and uh, did you blog about um just kind of the milestones with your son or did you blog about the family and just everything under the sun yeah i i my blog was sort of trying trying to be a, you know celebrate what it's like not not that there's a lot of celebration but right 
kind of bringing awareness to what life is like for families like ours. So when I first started blogging about it, I can remember thinking like as a writer, I don't know if this is if the same is for you, but I think many writers feel this way. Like when I'm writing, I'm thinking of my audience and mm -hmm. who's going to be, re who's going to be reading this. So when I first started blogging, which was like before you would post things on Facebook, I don't even know if Instagram was around yet. I was writing and I had specific people in mind, whether it was, you know, a distant family member or a neighbor, a well-meaning, well-intentioned neighbor who um, the, the people that would say things to me like, oh, he's not talking yet. Oh, don't worry. My kid was a late talker too. Oh, don't worry. He'll, he'll grow out of it. And they were saying these things that I know they were well-intentioned. Yeah, for sure. But, but they don't get it. Like they don't have a child with autism. So please don't tell me that my kid's going to grow out of autism because that's not how it works. <laughs> so or give you advice like, well, this is what you yes. need to do. <laughs> yes. So I was thinking about these, you know, these well-meaning, you know, friends or neighbors or family members that were saying these things to me over the years. Um, and I said, you know what, though, that's, that's the audience that I'm writing to. I want to make sure number that's the, that's audience number one that I'm writing to. I had, I had two in mind, really. I want those people to read this and get it. I want them to understand that this is what it's like. And then audience number two were the moms like you and me. I said, I want other moms out there to read this and say, I'm not alone. There's other people going through this also. So, um, so when I started blogging, that's what it was about. And it was anything from, you know, I know I have a blog about the day I realized that Catherine was surpassing Matthew. And I know I have, you know, I have all different ones about, you know, what holidays are like, or, you know, I have all different ones that I've written over the years. So I usually wait for inspiration to strike and, um, and then write something. <laughs> So. You know, one, one of your more recent ones, um, I didn't look at the date of it, but um, okay. it really hit me deeply. Um, I addressed that a little bit in the book um, about, you know, just kind of social situations that we go through. And I've talked about it on the podcast before, but you mentioned something along the lines of, um, you know, just our fears and concerns that we have when they're young and how that shifts it doesn't go away ever. And I think you mentioned to me earlier, it's, it's more than the stages of grief. It's more like cycles that we go through as they age from toddlers, preteens, teens, young adults, all of that. It's never, it never goes away. It's just an entirely new set of issues, responsibilities, things that we are uncertain about as them as adult for them as adults. And, um, those are the things that, um, I guess people don't understand. I, it feels like when people respond online or to blog or just anything that I see um, who don't live this life, they almost assume that you, you know, we'll put them in ABA programs. We'll put our children in every therapy that is known to man and that they will grow out of autism. They will eventually be a citizen that can be out with a job and do all of these things. And I just, you know, one of the, the points of, of the blogs like you've written and my book and other books is just for people to understand this doesn't end. 
when they turn 18. Like I will be taking care of Skylar until I am too old to be able to stand up and give him a bath anymore or whatever, you know, he's never, he's going to outlive me. And that's a concern and that, you know, they just don't grow out of this. And so people, you know, just don't understand when we say, I think you mentioned in the blog too, about how your husband and, and you wanted to go out and you mentioned something to a friend or a coworker of his, like, let me check and see if we can get a sitter, which okay. I guess at this age, we call them caregivers now, but, um, yeah. you know, and they were kind of like, huh, he's 16, <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Why do you need, why do you, why do you need a sitter? Right. Right. Conversations like that, that we say, and don't even think twice about that. And we get these looks like, what, why would you need? Cause they don't understand the severity of why we would need a caregiver. But, um, exactly. yeah, I just, do you run into that a lot? I mean, with him being 16, I, I just feel like that's my daily, I'm constantly explaining. Yeah. I feel like I can remember, um, I can remember a while back, um, we had secured a sitter and we'd gone out to dinner with some friends. This was a while ago and their kids were around the same ages as ours. So let's say when, let's say their oldest was 12. And they were like celebrating at dinner saying like, oh my gosh, this is our first night out without having to hire a sitter. And I was like, wait, what? What do you mean? You're 12 year old? And yeah, their 12 year old was really responsible and their other kids were like really well behaved. They just had, they just kind of lucked out in that department. So they were able to go out without a sitter and their 12 year old watched the kids. And I was like, oh my gosh, that, that's not ever like it was so foreign to me that mm-hmm. that, pe- that people who had kids my kids age could do this and that's when I started realizing now like we have always been very very lucky with sitters um we've always been involved in community um experiences such as like when we lived in Connecticut Matthew did this awesome um it was called tops soccer and it was uh-huh. a soccer soccer program on Saturdays for kids who had any type of disability. And there was always all these middle school and high school kids there as partner volunteers. So that was my first understanding of like, oh, this is where you get a babysitter. You look at, you look at these volunteers and you see which one, you see which one kind of um, understands Matthew and which ones he gravitates towards. And then you get their number. Or, or I would say to Matthew, Matthew, ask her if she babysits, get her number, you know, because he's not, he's, he's definitely not shy. And he, you know, he would, I, you know, do you want her to babysit you? Go ask her if she babysits. So we were very lucky that um, we had these programs available to us and that um, we would hire babysitters from this type, you know, people that we kind of felt like we knew because they were living in our community and they were volunteering at these types of programs. What we, what we started to do, this is kind of not answering your question, but it goes into the babysitter thing. <laughs> um, what, we, what we had to do in the beginning was actually we would hire two babysitters because uh-huh. Matthew needed and still does need like one-on-one constant attention and for, for his own safety. So we would try to find a babysitter who was of high school or college age, but maybe had a younger sibling who wasn't quite of babysitter age, but could just come and hang out with Catherine. And that was, that was beautiful. So we, we, there was a family that we knew in Connecticut that there, they actually had an older brother who had special needs. So they totally understood and the older sister was like the official babysitter and the younger sister was the hangout for Catherine. And it was just a beautiful thing for those ages for my kids. But, but actually but now, go ahead. 
No, I was going to say that actually answered my next question and um, yeah. what you're probably going to go into is what do you do now? Because I yeah. always worry that if Kendall's here um, with us and we finally get a chance to go out once a quarter, maybe, um, yeah, exactly. you know, we tell her like, well, we have a caregiver coming over, you know, to watch Skylar. And she's like, that's fine. I'll just hang out in my room or whatever. Cause she doesn't need a sitter. And we know that, but she exactly. can't watch him because I would never make her responsible for that. So it's so awkward. Cause I, I feel horrible having a sitter here with her just up in her room and she doesn't want to come out. Cause she's like, I don't need a babysitter. Yeah, exactly. So, so we have the same thing here. So be, like he needs a caregiver. Um, we were, we <laughs> my dad coined the term safekeeper, but I like oh, caregiver. I like it. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> He's a safekeeper. So um, we, we still have to hire someone to be with him. Um, luckily, Catherine is now at the age 14. She's a high school freshman where usually she's going to a friend's house or out on her own or I'll tell her like, dad and I are going to try and go out this night and we're having a, this is who the sitter is going to be. So if you don't want to be here, make it, try to make plans or I'll, or I'll like, we're very lucky that we live close to grandparents so she can opt to go there. So she doesn't have to be home because it is uncomfortable for like yourself, for my daughter, for your daughter to, you know, you're in your own home, but you're not in your own home because someone's here. And that's another, that's a tough thing for the siblings is that home does not become like that safe haven often, but there's either, like from the time she was little, there would either be an ABA therapist or a physical therapist or somebody coming through, um, somebody coming, you know, somebody coming through and to the house. So there's usually an extra person around. So that's, that's kind of a tough thing, I think, for the siblings. For sure. Well, and so, you know, just these experiences and everything that, you know, you've gone through raising a neurotypical child and an autistic child, um, is that what triggered you to write the book that you wrote? It's called Little Big Sister. It's a realistic fiction, um, and it's mm -hmm. a series, actually. There's two books. Um, yeah. now and is there more in the works we could talk about there that is. too but <laughs> yeah there's one more so basically when when Catherine was in about first grade she was starting to have you know she was having friends come over but it was selected selective friends because she was embarrassed because her brother is loud and he doesn't act like a typical older brother right mm -hmm. we can so relate. yes so one of the days that she had a friend over and they were young they were only in about first grade at the time and I'll never forget the friend. Um, so Matthew was doing his thing, making his noises, you know, watching, um, you know, Peppa Pig or something, you know, something that he was too old to watch. Like I know in your, in your book, you mentioned that your son watches a lot of Elmo. So here he is watching, watching like a preschool show, being very loud, doing his thing. And the friend that was over in her very unfiltered first grade self, which I very much appreciate that she did this. <laughs> she said, wow, your house is loud. <laughs> and I'll never forget because, you know, Catherine and I kind of looked at each other and my heart was breaking and aching oh, a little course. bit for her. You know, I have a pretty thick skin now, you know, <laughs> but she was in first grade. And my heart was aching for her because she did not want to hear that because that's another reason to be annoyed with your brother and why is my brother different and all those things, right? But so that night when um, I was putting her to sleep, oh, that's another reason why she's a little big sister. It's she always, you know, her bedtime was always later. 
you know, so one time, once, oh, which I'm sure is the same in your family. So that night after the play date, when I was putting her to sleep, we were talking about it um, because she had been so looking forward to this day. She had been so looking forward to this play date coming over. And then once the girl said that, she just couldn't wait for it to be over. And, you know, so that night I'm putting her to sleep and I said, so, you know, what did you think? You know, how did that go today? And she said, ah, oh, he is ruining my life and I never want to have a friend over ever again. And I knew in my heart that I did not want my daughter to feel that way. I wanted to help her feel comfortable in her own home that she could have friends over. And I knew that was a struggle and a challenge for her and also for me. It's something that I really wanted to help her with. So maybe that night, maybe the next day, I got the idea of, all right, I, I need to write a book that these kids that are in her school and in her class can read so that they can understand what it's like to have a sibling who has autism or really any disability and what that's like. And so that's what I started doing. So I just started writing like a couple paragraphs here and there. And I would show them to Catherine and say, what do you think? Is this, does this sound, is this what it's like? And at that point, the characters' names were my own children's names, Matthew and Catherine. And I would write a couple of paragraphs about like, this is what it's like to go to the playground. And I would insert a part where Matthew cuts the line and tries to go on monkey bars and, you know, you know pushes people down and, you know, grabs a girl's bow out of her hair and like all the things that he would do at the playground. You know, is this what it's like at the playground? Is this what it's like if we were to take him to the mall? Because there's a chapter about the mall. You know, is this what it's like when you have a play date? And I would write these things, write these little almost chapters, really just kind of paragraphs. And she would read it and she would say, yeah, this is what it's like. So then after a few um, sequences were written, I said, what do you think? We turn this into a book. And she said, what do you mean, mom? I said, what if we turn this into a book? She said, what do you mean, like a real book that people would read? I said, yes, a real book that people would read. And then they could understand what it's like because they don't understand. They don't have a brother with autism and it's important for people to know because there's all different types of people in this world. And if we can help them understand what autism is like, then we can help them. So that's how the book idea was born. Love that. And then what's the other, um, so the first yeah. book is called the Little first, Big Sister. The and first then... one is, yeah, the first one is Little Big Sister. And um, as I was, it's a, it's a third grade level chapter book. Okay. Um, if there's 22 chapters, if um, many teachers use the book as a read aloud during Autism Awareness Month, I do have a reader's guide that goes along with it that I said, if, um, if teachers go to my website and look me up, they can just, they can click on something there that they'll get a copy of the reader's guide if they want to use it with their students. It's just a way for students to further connect with the book. So I used to be a teacher and um, I guess I didn't even realize I was doing this when I wrote the book, but it really is well suited for classroom use because the chapters are pretty short. So you can get through a chapter like, if you're a teacher listening to this, you know, those like seven minutes that you're like, oh, we have seven <laughs> minutes and nothing to do. Well, you can get through a chapter, you know? So um, there's only, there's only one chapter towards the end that's, that's lengthy, but, um, and it's the juicy good chapter. I will not spoil it. So, um, so I, I wrote that book and then I started doing presentations in elementary schools, visiting author presentations. And when I would go to the, um, the schools, the kids would ask all these awesome questions. 
And I would just jot them down in my journal as they were asking them, thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I need to write a sequel because these kids have these great questions about autism and disabilities that I need to insert into another book. So at the time that the first book came out, we were moving from Connecticut where we had lived for about a decade back to New York. So I knew that was gonna be tough on our family and tough on my kids, but it had to be done for my husband's job. So meaning it was gonna be tough because we kind of had to start all over in a new neighborhood and you know, start over with new neighbors, new everything, new schools. And so the second book is called Little Big Sister on the Move because it's okay. what, what it's like to move and start fresh and, you know, tell new people what it's about. And the first book takes place during the school year. So a lot of the scenes are in school. And the second book is more of a summer book. It takes place during the summer months and more of a fun summer read. So, and there is, and you asked me, and I am working on book three. My goal is to make it into a three book series. Okay. And the third, the third, and I'm, I'm toying around with how to insert some um, pandemic type of scenes into the book, if I'm going to do that or not. But um, the third book is, to, is most likely going to be titled Little Big Sister on Vacation and kind of tell what it's like to travel with a brother who has autism and go on a plane Love and do all those things. So, because there's a lot, we have a lot of raw material that we can use <laughs> for that. So yeah, that's, um, for sure. that's about a, it, it, it's a slow go. It's about a quarter written. And I also have a, a goal to write a companion to this book because this is a third grade level book. I'd like to have a picture book, like a kindergarten, first grade level book, like mm -hmm. a read aloud. So I'm all, I'm simultaneously working on that. Um, my first, my first job right out of college was kindergarten teacher. I love read alouds. I love picture books. So um, I'm kind of going back to those roots and hoping to, um, you know, kind of have that companion book ready for younger students. That is so great. I, I swear, I feel like stuff like this, this series of books, um, since it tackles so many of the things that families go through, that it should be required reading. If not oh, every my. April, I mean, seriously, as a teacher too, you know that there is so little education for kids who don't have experiences with anyone that has a disability in their family. And they grow up learning about it through our kids. Yes. So it's, it's your daughter and my daughter and, you know, being open to talking about their, their siblings and the things that go on at our house and, and they don't develop that comfort level if ever until they're older. I mean, Kendall, right. as you heard on the podcast, when she was on, it's, it took me a, a year and a half of doing this podcast for her to, to come to me and say, I think I want to be a guest. I want to mm -hmm. be on there. Because she just, you know, she doesn't want to be vulnerable and put her life out there necessarily, even though anytime we go to church, anytime we go anywhere mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with her brother, she knows people are looking and staring. And I just, I think there's such a lack of education um, on, and it's, it's not their fault, but on families that have only neurotypical situations and they don't have to deal with any of this extra stuff that we deal with they don't educate their children on differences yeah. and, you know, and, just and I feel like not it's staring. Great, yes. And I feel like it's such a great education for, even for parents as a read aloud to their children at home, um, when parents don't know how to explain autism, 
this is a great way to explain it. Just reading this book with your child, you know? Yes. Kudos so, to you for doing it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's, you know, I, it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoy the writing process and I learned a lot along the way. So, um, and my favorite thing is of course, doing the presentations, um, which used to be live and now are um, virtual. <laughs> but, I'm sure they're um, still impactful they're fun. though. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Even the virtual is a lot of fun. I just, I love hearing from the kids who have read the book or listened to the book and get their feedback. And then answering their questions is what drives me forward and helps me to know like, oh, this will go in the third book because they asked that or they get, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's fun. Yeah. I third, feel like third, third graders. Yeah. Third graders are my people. I like third yeah. graders. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Is that the grade you used to teach? Um, I, I was a reading teacher, so I taught um, kindergarten through six um, remedial reading. Um, and oh. prior to that, prior to that, I taught kindergarten in a classroom setting, and, and I also taught sixth grade in a classroom setting. So third, I guess, is the average. <laughs> but yeah, third grade, sure. I, I chose third grade because, as a teacher of all those grade levels in the past, I learned, and as a parent of of kids, I learned that third grade is the grade that kids really start to notice the differences in yeah. their peers. Like up until that grade, oh, this one goes to speech. Can I go to speech too? Oh, my friend is going to this. Can I go to that too? You know, during the school day. But by third grade, they're like, why does he go to speech? Why is he being pulled out of the classroom? And they don't want to be different anymore. So um, up until second grade, it's kind of, I felt my own experience was like, you know, everybody's my friend. And then by third grade, things change something happens. So I felt like third grade was the, um, and, and third grade is really when they're, they're reading to learn, not so much learning to read. Mm -hmm. They're reading to learn. So I felt like third grade for this book was, you know, the content would be accessible to that age group and appropriate for that age group. I didn't want to point something out too soon. That was a difference. You know what I mean? Like up until second grade, first, second grade, the kids are kind of still just accepting everything. For sure. And I, I learned in a leadership course I took years ago that your memories um, as a child and your biases, your just your beliefs and, and what your morals, all of that stuff is developed between the ages of three and eight. So if you look back on your life um, in, in the way that you believe um, in certain things, I mean, gosh, with the with the political environment we're in right now, just the way that you believe and and the and the, the just your values, like I said, and the and um, you know, things that you hold true, it all comes stems from ages three to eight, and any memories you have, um, that's where people learn to discriminate. That's where people learn to you know just have biases. Um, and it's, it's crazy if you really think wow. about that and you think about your life where you were at age three to eight and the things that your parents maybe told you or your friends and the influences that were in your life, that is the time when all of that is, you know, locked in for you. And then you carry that with you unless it dramatically changes over time. That's how you raise your kids. And then it just continues on. So that's why I'm so passionate about elementary level books, um, elementary age level books like this for this age, because you can really change the future with kids having a better understanding and a compassion and an empathy um, for yeah. people who are different and have differences. Um, 
I think there should be an entire right. curriculum on this, you know? Oh, I wish there was. Yeah, I wish there was. And there's some teachers who really connect with this and they, and they contact me every year to come back. And there's some schools who will have me come in once and, you know, and I'll do the whole school and then hopefully they'll call me again six years later when they have all six, you know, all those six grades are, are new kids again. <laughs> but um, I'm so grateful to the teachers who read it every single year with their with their students and, yeah. um, you know, really help their, give, they give their students that opportunity for that education of like what you're saying of em empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. Well, I will be linking up, um, the, um, the, your, the, uh, I cannot talk today either. <laughs> I couldn't talk the other day when I was recording and I'm stumbling oh. today too. Uh, Corona. I'll blame everything on Corona. <laughs> it's 2020. <laughs> it's, 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 it's the way of 2020. I know, right? I will be linking up your your website and um, it, the ability to order the books um, and the series that you have out there, the two books, and so that people can right. click on that and and much easier uh, path to finding you and finding your book and also any of your social media um, handles that you have so that people can reach out to you. I, I definitely plan to reach out to all my teacher friends and make sure that oh, this is a book series that they have heard of um, and that they're implementing in their programming. My sister's up has been a teacher for over 25 years and she's oh, wow. a reading interventionalist now. Oh, and she, she can bring it to her school. Yeah, I know she, um, I, she uh, yeah. is middle school, but still oh. she, she uh, would definitely be invested in this. So yeah, I recently, I recently did a con not contest, but something on social media where um, uh, my goal was to get a copy of little big sister book into um, a third grade classroom in every single state. So I was having, you know, trying to contact teachers and have teachers contact me from every state. And I just, I just accomplished it this past Monday. So, um, hey. so I have a copy in every state and I just, you know, my goal is just always, and my passion is to spread autism awareness and help young people understand differences. So hopefully now at least one classroom in every state will be, <laughs> will be reading it. Yeah. Well, I can help you with Kentucky, Indiana, and Michigan. Thank you. Those are about Thank the, you. <laughs> the three where I have all my connections. Um, and I'm sure through mm -hmm. other podcasts, uh, podcasters and other listeners of my podcast, I mm -hmm. would guarantee that there are plenty of teachers and parents who would love to see these in their areas too. So um, I, I want right. to make sure that we make that our, our mission for 2021 to get Wonderful. this book everywhere we can. So yeah. um I just, I so appreciate your honesty and, and candor with everything. Um, are you still blogging at um, Dancing in the Rain or? So the, yeah, so the blog, yeah, the blog is on connect, it's on my website, on okay. littlebigsisterbook.com. Yeah, little so the blog is connected there. I called it Dancing in the Rain back when I started it because Little Big Sister had not been born yet. So I, that was just the name that I picked for the blog way back when. Um, so, but you can connect that and I am still writing that, but not as often. I, I, I'm probably writing about once a season, but this year, 2020, um, maybe twice a year. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's not as often. Um, but, um, but I do enjoy the, what that allows me to do is process what I'm going through when I write about, you know, what's going on. So. Well, and once you get your series uh, finished, which it'll probably not be three, it'll probably end up being like five because there's always something to write about <laughs> yes. with these kids. Um, but uh, you should definitely write a memoir too, because I Aww. mean, 
you're an excellent writer and it's very cathartic. I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really enjoyed reading. I really enjoyed reading your book. I sped right through it this week. So thanks. <laughs> thanks for what you're doing in the disability community and the autism community by connecting families and, and helping people to feel less alone on the journey. So thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm just one person, but you know, I feel like mm -hmm. if all of us band together and yes. just start making it okay to talk out loud and for the bad days, the good days, mm -hmm. the celebrations, the horrible all meltdowns, you know, whatever <laughs> it's our life. And I don't want anyone feeling alone yeah. anymore. I felt alone yeah. for so many years and I, I just, I would hate that for people to still feel like they have nobody to turn to and to ask for help. Yes, so it's so true. It's so true. And I find, I find that this kind of goes back to, what, I know we're wrapping it up and I just wanted to say one more thing. I, I want, um, when I was going through that feeling very alone part in my life, when my, Matthew was very young, um, I met a woman at a, at a special ed PTA meeting and she was speaking about her daughter who was probably about a good, you know, 10 years older than my son. And the way she talked about her with this big smile on her face and she described her as a bundle of joy. And she just had this big smile on her face whenever she talked about her. And I was in the place of feeling like uh, my life was a bundle of stress, not a bundle of joy. And I, I was, you know, just depleted, energy deplete, everything, sleep deprived, everything. And um, after hearing this woman speak about her daughter, I said to myself, I want to feel that. I want to learn how to feel that way. I want to learn how to think of this as, a, as my kid as a bundle of joy, even when he's not. And even he you know, not always a bundle of joy. Sometimes he is. <laughs> so, <laughs> they have their moments. Um, yeah, yeah, they have their moments. So um, what I learned from that really was how important it is to have other parents in your life, obviously like you and me, you know, have other parents in your life who are on this journey, but also to have the parents who are 10 years ahead of you on the journey because they have so much to teach us. And then in turn, we have so much to teach the generation that's coming up behind us of how to connect, how to find the supports and services, how to not feel alone. So, and then saying that, or I will tell you honestly that what I have learned from Matthew over the years is that he is what keeps me grounded in my life. If I didn't yeah. have him on a daily reminding me what's really important, like when I watch the world through his eyes and when I see how he brings out the best and the people that he interacts with, it's like he's... It's like he's putting a lot of hope out into the world by just being himself. So yeah. he keeps me very, he, he, I find that that is, um, that's what I feel from him is that he keeps me grounded and um, he puts a lot of hope in my heart and hopefully out into the world. I, I agree with you so much. I feel like every single person I know, every single person in this world has a purpose and they are put here for a purpose. And, you know, we may not specifically know what it is, um, you know, in our lifetime, but I do know that, you know, maybe if I can't identify exactly what Skylar's like role is going to be in the world and what gifts he has and talents he has and job he may have or any of those things. But what, like you said, I mean, what he's brought out in me alone is yeah. the writing that I love to do, but I just never really thought I should do it. 
he inspired right. me to write a book. He inspired me to be a, you know, a public voice, I guess, with a podcast and other things. And I'm mm -hmm. sure Matthew did the same for you. You clearly right. are a writer and you had that in you, mm -hmm. um, but maybe you wouldn't have, have published books until, right. you know, he inspired you to do so. So there's always yes. a purpose. And I think our, our future finds us. This isn't what I thought I would be doing. I never would have envisioned this, but, um, you know, I, I'm loving sure. it and I'm yes. trying to help be a voice for people like him who don't have one. So, yes. you know, he drew me to it. So <laughs> yes. Yes. these help me meet great people like you. So <laughs> we wouldn't have connected otherwise. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So. It was, yeah. It was all, it was all because it was all because I heard your, your um, interview with your daughter when you interviewed your daughter and I thought, Oh, we have to connect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to have gotten the chance to talk to you and I will definitely, um, own my words. I will make sure that this book is known all throughout the world. I, I promise oh, you, I you. just, <laughs> I see so much importance in it. I, I really do. And, um, I just thank you so much for, for doing it and putting it out there. And I highly encourage more people who have stories to tell, to get your pen and paper out and just start, just start yes. writing it. We so need true. more resources. So yes, we do. Yes. We do. Well, thank you so much for this time together. This conversation really meant a lot to me and I hope it means a lot to the listeners as well. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Amy. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too, Lori. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Living the Sky Life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Living the Sky Life podcast within Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share Living the Skylife with others. Thanks again for listening.